Today we live on a sin-sick planet, don't we? And it seems to be getting sicker every day. And there is one central reason for that is because our society has forsaken God. Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer explain how this happened in their new book, Critical Dilemma. All of the major influencers of our culture, our universities, our schools, our media, our politics, even the realms of entertainment and business, they have been captured by an ideology, this ideology of critical theory, dividing the world into the oppressors and the oppressed. Foundational questions about life are answered in completely different ways than they are in the Bible. Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. Well, when I was uh, 12 years old, um, Joy to the World was the number one hit song in both the U.S. and Canada. Uh, and of course, I'm not talking here about the Christmas Carol, but rather the song performed by Three Dog Night on the radio all the time. It goes like this, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. And uh, he was a good friend of mine, and I never understood a single word he said, but I helped him drink his wine, and he always had some mighty fine wine. Singing, joy to the world, all the boys and girls. Joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea. Joy to you and me. Oh boy, I tell you, if you're over 50 years old, you have heard that on the radio so many times. (laughs) Now, did you know that that song almost didn't happen? Hoyt Axton wrote that song, November 18, 1970. He approached Three Dog Night about performing it, but two of the three main singers hated it. They called it a kid's song. They said, this is a silly song. Nobody's going to go for this. But lead singer Chuck Negron persuaded the other two that this song was exactly what was needed to bring the band together. Only one small change was made. Originally, Axton had written that Jeremiah was a prophet, but they changed that to Bullfrog, and the rest is history. In February of 1971, they released the song, and shock of all shocks, it swept the country and rocketed to number one on the charts. Imagine that. A song about a drunken bullfrog becomes the most popular song in the country. Now, thank God, there is a second song entitled Joy to the World. But this one is not about a bullfrog. It is about the King of Kings' arrival on planet Earth. In the year 1719, an English pastor with a nice hairdo wrote Joy to the World. His name was Isaac Watts, and he wrote it after meditating On Psalm 98, today this carol has become the most published Christmas hymn in North America. 
Ironically, it wasn't written as a Christmas carol. In fact, it wasn't even written to be a song. It's a poem. And it's focused not on the first coming of Christ, but on the second. Nevertheless, it became the most published Christmas hymn of all time. And today I want to show you how both the birth of Christ and the return of Christ bring joy to us. Do you want that? Do you want your Christmas this year to be filled with joy? Pastor Isaac Watts teaches us that true joy comes from four sources. It's not found in how many presents you receive. It's not found in getting a Christmas bonus. It's not found in getting a break from school. It's not found in getting drunk at a Christmas party. And it's not even found in having everyone home for Christmas, although that may bring some temporary joy. But rather, true joy, lasting joy, is found in four sources, which align perfectly with the four verses of joy to the world. Let's look at them one by one. The first source is that joy comes when a king is received. Verse 1, we sing, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare a room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. Isaac Watts got that from Psalm 98.2, which says, The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Did you know that the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua? And here's what's interesting. Yeshua is also the name for Jesus among Messianic Jews. That's Jews that follow Jesus. In the Old Testament, it's a word found 77 times. Two of those times are found here in verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 98. We could translate it like this. The Lord has made Jesus known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Now the Hebrew word for nations is goyim. It is the Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, you're a goyim. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel and all of the ends of the earth have seen Jesus. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Jesus came to save both Jews and Gentiles. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the good news about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Jesus came as a Jew first, uh, a Jew to reach first his own people, the Jewish people. The 12 disciples were all Jews. Most of our Lord's early converts were Jews. 
but they were in the minority of the Jews. For John 1 puts it like this, Jesus came that, uh, to that which was his own. He came to the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. The majority of the Jews did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now the Greek word for receive is lambano. It means to take, to accept, to actively lay hold of. It's also, that word is used of marriage in the sense of taking a spouse, receiving a spouse, accepting a spouse. Can I ask you today, have you received Jesus as your king? Joy to the world begins. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Have you prepared room in your heart for King Jesus? Have you accepted him, taken him into your life, laid hold of him, received him as you do a spouse. The Bible says that everyone who receives him will be granted the right to become children of God. Did you know that no one is automatically a child of God? If you don't know that, don't feel bad because the greatest teacher in Israel didn't know that. In John chapter 3, Rabbi Nicodemus comes to have a little talk with Jesus. And he's confused because he thought salvation was based on two things. First, being Jewish. And second, keeping rules. And man, did they have the rules. 613 commands. But Jesus straightened them out. Jesus taught salvation has nothing to do with being a Jew and it has nothing to do with keeping rules. Instead, Jesus said to him in verse 3, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus is confused by that. What do you mean, Jesus? How can you climb into your mother's womb again? And Jesus clarifies, verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Now, Jesus is not talking about baptism here. No ceremony can wash away your sins. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that you have to have your soul cleansed. You have to have your soul purified. And that happens when the Holy Spirit enters your life at the time you receive Jesus and accept him into your life. Have you been born again? When was that? I was physically born July 23rd, 1958, 7 a.m. at the Staples Hospital, Staples, Minnesota. And I was spiritually born again 
On November 30th, 1967, in my parents' bedroom, 6.30 a.m. in the morning, I prayed with my mother to receive Jesus as my Savior and my King. Now, I do think we must be careful not to be too rigid here. It's entirely possible that you may not remember the exact date when you were born again. After all, there are people living today who for one reason or another cannot definitely identify the date of their physical birth. Often happens with adoptees from foreign countries. Accurate records were not kept. But be assured that all of us were physically born at a point in time. And if you've been born again, it also happened at a point in time. You should be able to identify the general time period when you accepted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. The great British author C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, was born on November 29, 1898, Belfast, Northern Ireland. Lewis was born again on September 22, 1931, after a series of long talks with J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings. Tolkien led Lewis to Christ. How about you? When were you born again? And if there are any doubts in your mind about whether you have truly accepted, taken, received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you can put those doubts to rest today. I like to call it putting a stake in the ground. That's where you open your Bibles to Romans 10 verse 9. And it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord of the universe, that he's your Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then the Bible says you will be saved. It doesn't say that you might be saved. It doesn't say maybe you'll be saved. It says you will be saved. Truly, joy comes when a king is received. When you make room in your heart for him, have you done that? Now the second source of joy is when a savior reigns. Verse 2 of Joy to the World goes like this. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods and rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. Pastor Watts is getting these words from Psalm 98.4. Which says, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth burst into jubilant song with music. It goes on to say, verse 5, make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King and let all the seas resound and everything in it. 
the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Did you know that there will actually be a day when Jesus rules here on our planet, this earth? Zechariah 14 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it tells us that this day is coming. Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day there will be one Lord and his name the only name. Today we live on a sin-sick planet, don't we? And it seems to be getting sicker every day. And there is one central reason for that is because our society has forsaken God. Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer explain how this happened in their new book, Critical Dilemma. All of the major influencers of our culture, our universities, our schools, our media, our politics... Even the realms of entertainment and business, they have been captured by an ideology, this ideology of critical theory, dividing the world into the oppressors and the oppressed. Foundational questions about life are answered in completely different ways than they are in the Bible. The Bible says human beings are made in the image of God. But critical theory says human beings are are members of various social groups and they're vying for power. The Bible says our core problem is sin. Critical theory says our core problem is oppression. Bible says our salvation is found in Christ. It is found in his work on the cross. Critical theory says our salvation is found in activism. And it's found in protesting. <laughs> and uh, if you haven't seen the, uh, the, the, the new video, The Fall of Minneapolis, I strongly encourage you to just watch that. All of the craziness that took place in the city of Minneapolis. It's on YouTube. You can watch it for free. Very, very well done. Liz Collins, outstanding Christian who was a reporter at Channel 4. And she tells you all of the things that you didn't see. <laughs> Circumstances of the, the uh, George Floyd situation. All based on critical theory. What we saw took place. Beautiful illustration of that. The Bible says that our purpose is to glorify God. Critical theory says our purpose is to fight man-made injustice. And you could just go on and on. The Bible says that truth is found here. It's found in God's word. Critical theory says truth is found in life experiences. The Bible says that the end goal of history is a new heaven and a new earth where Jesus reigns. 
Critical theory says that the end goal of history is when a socialist utopia reigns. Do you see how the Christian worldview is primarily, the Christian worldview is vertical. It has to do with our relationship to God. But the critical theory worldview is horizontal. It addresses our relationships with other human beings. The Christian worldview is in full agreement with the statement, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Critical theory would like to change that to joy to the world, a socialist utopia reigns. But that will never happen. You know why? Because of the sin problem. And that is the theme of verse 3 of Joy to the World. A third source of joy is when a sinner repents. Here's verse 3 of Joy to the World. No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. In this verse, Pastor Watts appeals to another text of Scripture found in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. In these verses, God is describing the punishment that Adam will endure for his rebellion against God. God said to Adam, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Now those are some of the saddest words found in the Bible. But they're also some of the most important words in the Bible because they accurately diagnose the core problem of humanity. And you know what? The core problem of humanity is not oppression. The core problem of humanity is sin. Adam and Eve lived in a paradise. They had everything you'd ever want to have. There was no racism in the Garden of Eden. No sexism. No poverty. No slums. No ghettos. There wasn't a lack of education. There was no lack of money or material goods or good health care. You know what? Adam and Eve could go anywhere they wanted. They could do anything they wanted to do. Except one thing. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree. And despite all that God had done for them, Satan was still able to persuade them that God is holding out on them. So they rebelled. 
And instantly a curse fell over the entire universe. And everything that is living began to die and decay and deteriorate. Now, I find it interesting that there are some book, hymn books that have, tra- uh, have uh, changed the phrase, far as the curse is found. They look at that and they say, you know, that's, that's just not politically correct, you know. It's, uh, it's too negative. And so they change it to something positive. That's also what's happened with Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And let me tell you, Pastor Denny's just as much of a wretch as you are. But some people have said, that's just too offensive. So they changed it. And they said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone like me. Or take the hymn, In Christ Alone, which says on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And again, too offensive for some. So they go in and they change that hymn. On the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now that is entirely true, but it is not what the songwriter was teaching when, it, when, uh, when they wrote those original words. Four places in the Bible we are taught about propitiation. That Christ's death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God towards sin that should have been poured out on us. But it wasn't. Jesus took that wrath so that we wouldn't have to. Praise God. Some churches and pastors, they have... They've taken this to a whole new level. They've canvassed the whole area and they've gone and knocked on doors and they've asked people, what keeps you from going to church? And not surprisingly, people have complained. They said, you know, they talk too much about sin. And then they'll go to the next and they'll say, you know, they, uh, they, they talk too much about the devil, you know, this devil, you know. Talk too much about it. And then they'll go to the next guy, and you know, the church, that's all they do is talk about judgment. And then the next place, you know, and they, they say, well, the church, they, they talk about hell. Why are they trying to scare people? Okay. You know what, Harland family? We don't go by polls, you know. Because you cannot delete talk about sin and Satan and judgment and hell without gutting the very gospel that saves us. You see, you have to know the good news, the bad news. You have to know the bad news, that we are sinners bound for hell, that we are wretches in need of a Savior You have to know that before you can know the good news that Jesus offers salvation through his blood that paid the entire penalty for your sin. Folks, you got to know you're lost before you can be found. That's why the very first words that Jesus recorded is recorded as saying in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, are these. Jesus said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent 
Oh, Jesus, that's too negative a word. Oh, we can't have a word like that. No, Jesus said that. Repent. Repent means to do a 180. You turn around. You're going in the wrong direction. Turn around. And then Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. Now we'll be heading in the right direction. Repentance, turning from your sin, and belief, turning toward Christ, the two go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. In verse 3 of Joy to the World, the hymn writer longs for this day when sin is permanently banished. No more let sins and sorrows reign, nor thorns infest the ground. Joy comes when sin is dealt with. And you can start today by repenting of your sins and turning to Jesus. Praise God. Now let's move to the fourth source of joy, which comes. Fourth source of joy comes when truth rules with grace. Verse 4 of Joy to the World goes like this. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. And the wonders of his love. Here, Pastor Watts returns to Psalm 98 for his closing verse. In verse 2, we see that God's plan of salvation, it beautifully blends grace and truth. It says, the Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. God is a holy God. He's a pure God. And he declares to us in the Old Testament what is right and what is wrong. But you can know that and still not be saved because no one can perfectly keep the law. Can't do it. I mean, there's 613 commands. You know, even if we get 90%. You know, we're still missing out on 60 of them. In verse 3, we see the beauty of God's grace. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all of the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, John 1.14 describes it like this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. And what was he? He was full of grace and full of truth. You know, throughout his life, Jesus embodied this beautiful balance of grace and truth, and he did it all the way to the cross. And at the cross, God's grace in offering his son to purchase our freedom, collided with God's truth in requiring that a priceless and sinless sacrifice must be paid to atone for sin. The cross is grace mixed with truth. 
And Jesus held grace and truth in perfect balance. But you know what? Us mortals, we struggle with that, don't we? (laughs) Sue and I found this out as we were parenting our children. You know, I had that tendency to be a little bit more on the truth side. Not surprisingly. (laughs) And Sue had to graciously remind me, Oh, Danny, we need, to, we need to extend some grace here. And when you're really seeking God as parents, he will help you with that, balancing out grace and truth. You realize that alone, we almost always err on one side or the other. Over the last couple of years, the evangelical world has watched one of my heroes. He was one of my heroes. I love Pastor Andy Stanley. Read a number of his books, but we're watching him veer closer and closer to heresy. Last year, he referred to Bible verses that teach on homosexuality. He called them clobber verses. And folks, that just really irked me the wrong way because there are no clobber verses. Every verse in this Bible is given for our own good. Now, there's some that I don't like to, you know, Lord, I don't like to read that right now, Lord, because I'm struggling with that. But there are no clobber verses. Just three months ago, Andy hosted a conference at his North Point Church in Atlanta, and they featured two speakers who are strong supporters of same-sex marriage. And then Andy spoke at the conference himself. And the evangelical world's looking at that and we're going, why? But then a few few days later, Andy insisted he still supports biblical marriage and doesn't condone sin. Chris Ewan, a professor at Moody Bible Institute, And a man who has struggled with same-sex attraction himself, he says, Andy Stanley, you can't have it both ways. After all, Chris noted, Jesus taught us to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And that's going to look different for all of us. You see, Jesus would never extend grace at the expense of truth. When the woman was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus, John chapter 8, he extended both grace and truth. Jesus challenged her accusers, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then one by one, they all melted away. And then Jesus turned to the woman and he said, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's truth. I close with this. Do you realize throughout the Christmas narratives, we see the birth of Jesus. It brought joy to all of those who were exposed to the baby. Matthew 2, verse 10, the Magi were overjoyed when they saw the star that led them to Jesus. Luke 1.44, a pregnant Elizabeth went to visit a pregnant Mary and said to her, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Luke 1.47, Mary says, my spirit rejoices. Luke 2.10, the angel declared to the shepherds, 
I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. Luke 2.13, a great company of angels appeared and they began praising God. And the shepherds did the same thing after visiting the baby Jesus in Luke 2.20. And then godly old Simeon, after praying over the baby Jesus, Luke 2.28, full of thanksgiving and praise that he has lived to see this day. And he was soon followed, Luke 2.38, by the prophetess Anna, who also gave thanks, oh God, thank you, that I was able to see the Christ child. Isn't that amazing? Everyone who came into the presence of baby Jesus is filled with joy. And that's true for us today. Psalm 1611 says, in his presence there is fullness of joy. Does that mean it's always easy? Absolutely not. Pastor John Piper says we have to relentlessly fight for joy. I know I do. George Mueller said, I make it the first order of every day to get my soul happy in the Lord. It's not easy. We have to fight for joy. You know what's the best way to do that that I've found out? It's to hang out with joy-filled people. It really helps because joy is contagious. The Christmas carol, Joy to the World, reminds us why we can have joy. Because the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. 